And I got to hold people while they died. I held this man's head in my arms. And there were people all around him, petting him and praying to him, rubbing his feet. And he passed away. And the nun said, more people loved him in that five minutes than loved him in the last 10 years of his life. And I'll tell you what, I have never felt more freedom from the bondage of self. I felt like I showed up to a dance that had been choreographed 300 million years ago, just like that bird flying by. I knew what I was supposed to do, and I felt light. I felt completely free. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you're all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Howdy, howdy, howdy. My friends, that was the voice of Mr. Matthew M. that you heard at the beginning of this episode one more time. And you will be hearing so much more from him in just a moment on this here episode number one. Nine one, that'd be uno nueve uno. Uh, this here episode number one nine one of Sober Speak. But first things first. This episode, the one you are listening to right now, right here, is brought to you by Tanya and Kirk. Do you know what Tanya and Kirk did? Well, let me inform ya. They went to our website, www.soberspeak.com. They clicked on the little yellow donate tab and they made a, a contribution. Thank you so much, Tanya and Kirk, for your generosity. This episode is coming right out to youans. I, John M., just another bozo on the bus, will be the chairperson for this meeting between meetings, and I am truly honored and privileged to serve all of you listening in. So take a seat, if you will, around this virtual table, and let's get started. Remember, no matter who you are or what your past looks like, you are welcome here. It is an open table, and we gl- we are glad you are all here. All right, so just a couple of uh, pieces of uh, information, and then we'll get right into Mr. Matthew. First of all, if you want to go back and look at our website again, it has been redone one more time by the lovely Mrs. M. She has made it so aesthetically pleasing. I just love what she has done to the website. And uh, here's something that you may find handy. I do have people writing in sometimes or asking me if uh, I have certain speakers like Matthew, for example, that are bunched together where they can find them easily on the podcast. Well, up to this point, we haven't had a search feature, but if you go to the website, soberspeak.com, you click on podcast, the podcast page, and you will notice there is a search feature embedded in the website. So in other words, you could hit the word or you could type, not hit the word, you could type the word Matthew in there and all of Matthew's episodes would come up. You could type the word Bill for Bill C or just type in Bill C and his episodes will all come up. So that feature is now available to you. And here is a shout out to the lovely Mrs. M. She has been very hard at work, folks, uh, making that website look uh, presentable. 
uh, presentable, is that the word? Making it look awesome, I should probably say that. And uh, thank you very much to my lovely bride. Um, and while I'm at it, I just want to go ahead and put a, another shout out in to Mr. Miss Cassandra. Cassandra is constantly posting things on Instagram for you guys. And I am just so, uh, appreciative that she does that like three or four times a week. She, and she is a very, she has a very busy life. And I, I just want to put a, a, in a public shout out for her. And I, I'm just most appreciative of everything that she does for the Sober Speak community. In terms of Facebook, if you are not part of our Sober Speak fa- secret Facebook group, look for secret Facebook group, Sober Speak secret Facebook group on it within uh, Facebook, and there'll be a little button there saying just you can ask to join and go ahead and click that, and we'll get you on in the group. All right. I wanted to read this. Oh, by the way, I want to let you know that we will have a musical treat at the end of this episode from Miss Mary Lynn B. And the song is called In These Rooms. It's a 12-step song. Uh, it's absolutely beautiful. I know you're going to love it. And so you just say to yourself, well, John, where did you meet Mary Lynn B? At a rock concert somewhere? Um, she seems to be very, very talented. Well, she is very talented, but I met her sitting next to me in a meeting at the Frisco Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. She does an absolutely fantastic job. I, I, I can't even believe she was sitting there, and I had no idea she had written all these beautiful songs. But my friend Ricky R. told me about Mary Lynn B., and now she has agreed to let me feature some of her music, musica, on the program, and I am most appreciative of her. Speaking of the Facebook group, this is posted in the secret Facebook group by our friend Steve R. And I saw this the other day and I just wanted to read it to you. Once again, Steve R. is our kind of, I call him our daily reflections guy. He goes in there every day. He posts something. Uh, it is a quote from the big book. And then he follows it up with a little commentary afterwards and he does um, uh, an, an outstanding job. And so here it is. He, he wrote this, or he got this quote from the big book. It's page 77 of the big book. It says, at the moment, we are trying to put our lives in order, but this is not an end in itself. Our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. Page 77. Let me read that again. At the moment, we are trying to put our lives in order, but this is not an end in itself. What is our real purpose, John M.? Our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. And then Steve writes afterwards with some commentary. He says, I initially came to recovery to stop the pain and to get my life in order, to get my wife and my kids back, to return home, to save my business. I lost the business. My wife divorced me. Most of my kids still don't talk to me, but I have found a freedom and happiness I never knew in my act of alcoholism. I serve God and others, and I am grateful purposeful, and awake. And then he always ends it with help one, save two, happy Tuesday. Thanks for posting that in there, Steve. Thanks for posting everything that you do within that group. I am uh, I am just uh, beside myself with joy that you continue to do that and uh, very appreciative. All right. Now, on to Mr. Matthew M., Oh, you know what? Hold on. I I forgot to put this where I need it. All right. Matthew M. This one is about surrender number 12. And just in case you haven't heard Matthew's episodes in the past, uh, he calls the 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 steps the surrenders and we talk about that a little bit on the beginning of this episode we address spiritual awakenings matthew reviews the meeting of bill and bob and how that occurred giving us a little history lesson there um here's one of my favorite parts is we talk about you know how we all well 
not we all, a lot of times there are names given within uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, some of the names are quite entertaining. One person that Matthew talks about here is Liver Mike, and the reason they called him Liver Mike is because when he drank, he turned yellow. So we talk about Liver Mike and the lessons that Matthew learned from Liver Mike. Matthew also talks about Barnyard Tim. So <laughs> gotta love those names. So there's so much more past that. Uh, be sure, uh, be sure to hang in there for the entire episode on this one. I, I promise you, you will be thankful that you did. All right, everybody, I will have plenty of listener feedback in Mary Lynn B.'s song at the end of this episode. Enjoy Matthew M. Okay, everybody, so we are sitting here again, and again means a couple different things in this particular scenario because (laughs) I started recording with Matthew about six, seven minutes ago, and I completely Forgot to hit the record button, but again, can also, you know, I did that once with Bill C too. And he said, it is so nice to work with a professional, John. (laughs) You're out of the band, John. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we are sitting here again. And the other meaning of again means that we have had Matthew on the, uh, on the podcast several times in the past. Um, and, uh, so we're sitting here with him again. So Matthew, first things first, why don't you go ahead, introduce yourself, give your sobriety date if you so wish and tell people where you're sitting at, at this very moment. In fact, you are not where you're usually sitting when we get together. That is correct. So my name's Matthew M. Um, I'm from Southern California originally. I normally live in Santa Paula now. I used to be in Long Beach. I live in Santa Paula between Ojai and Ventura. Uh, my sobriety date's May 16th, 1993. So like I said, seven minutes ago, <laughs> three weeks ago, I turned 28. Uh, but right now I'm sitting in my son Rory's apartment in Tacoma, Washington. Um, we can fly again. And my wife and I felt like it'd be a good time to come up and see our boy. And then uh, she's going to go down and see Phoebe, my oldest daughter, who's 28 on May 16th also, 28 years old. And then I'm going to go into Washington, Seattle on Monday and hang out with some of my AA buddies at the Washington Athletic Club. That's right. Your sobriety date coincides with the birth of your eldest daughter, correct? That's right. Phoebe Rose. Yep, I remember that. Okay, so and I, I want you to go ahead and and tell this this real quick story again because you you, you and I were were chatting about how we've known each other uh, for a couple years now. Uh, we've gotten together many times. Uh, I you know I feel like I know you, but we have never actually met eyeball to eyeball because you live in California, I live in Texas, and then the world just shut down like a year and a half ago or so. But we are hoping through conferences or just travel or whatever the case may be that we will be able to meet up eyeball to eyeball pretty soon. And you mentioned that when you were in Texas at one point, what'd you say about that bus driver? Yeah, I'd gotten thrown out of a a very good band, a touring recording band. And I was living on the East Coast in North Carolina with them. And I had to go back to Los Angeles. So I took a Greyhound bus and And right in the middle of the night, the bus driver said, now we're going to drive through Texas forever. (laughs) And and he was (laughs) completely telling the truth. I think I woke up three times and we were still in Texas. But uh, that's one of my recollections of your lovely, gigantic state. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is. And Dallas is what they call deep in the heart of Texas, (laughs) right at the heart, actually, if you're uh, looking at it on a map. So, all right. So uh, let's go ahead and cover for, you know, we we pick up new listeners all the time and some of the people are going to know this. Some of them are and will not. If you look for Matthew M on Sober Speak, you'll see all of his various episodes. But we started recording Matthew a long time ago. And when we first started, I just kind of got a story. And then we decided to do a little bit uh, further deep dive, if you will, into the the steps. But Matthew refers to the steps 
as surrenders. And why don't you go ahead and get everybody caught up again on why you call the surrender, why you call the steps of surrenders, and what you mean by that? Yeah, I don't. I don't think in any of them I actually told the specific day or origin of that. So about 15 years ago, I was asked to do a men's retreat in Hawaii. And they asked for a theme for the retreat. And I had been thinking about this for a while and looking at the steps and having my experience and watching other people I got to take through the book have their experience. And I just wrote to them and said, the theme is the 12 surrenders. Because to me, you know, it, the, it, each one of these is an incremental surrender, right? I mean, if I'm in the bondage of self and I want freedom, I have to surrender something. And the the fifth step in the 12 and 12, I love the first sentence. It says, all of AA's 12 steps ask us to go against our natural desires. They all diminish our egos. And I think doing anything against your natural desire is a surrender. And, and they all make us do that. And they all bear fruit because we are surrendering something. And each step we've talked about what we were surrendering. Love it. Okay. So we are going to now, like I said, we left off with uh, surrender 11. By the way, after surrender 12, we're definitely going to have to think of something else to focus on or talk about because, and I mean this in a uh, very complimentary way, you have loads of and uh, great content and I want to get you back and we'll figure out what to talk about past this. So, but now we're at surrender 12. Surrender 12 is having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. That being said, Matthew, where do you want to start with Surrender 12? Uh, I think I'll start at the beginning with this spiritual awakening. And I think maybe that's the, the topic of our next conversation, spiritual experiences. But because I've had a lot and I'm not going to tell you all about them today. And uh, I want to talk about the spiritual awakening. I have had one as a, a result of these steps and, and, and it's an awakening. I haven't, I didn't have one and it went past me and, and I don't have it anymore. In fact, I think that Sandy Beach said it most beautifully. He's uh, towards the end of his life. Sandy said, you know, everybody acts like Bill had this white light experience and it was finite and it just happened. And, and because of it, Bill, you know, had a spiritual awakening and, what Sandy said, and I agree with, is that spiritual awakening never stopped happening because Sandy gave it, or, or Bill pushed it along, gave it to other people. That spiritual awakening is just like a, a, a pebble in a pond. It's going all over the world all the time, right? And and for me, the, my spiritual awakenings have been through these surrenders. I've had them, and I have them. It, I have it, and I'm not going back to sleep, largely because I stay really close to the program. But, you know, Bill... It used to get a hard time, you know, from cynical New York AAs like, hey, how was your hot flash bill? You know, and, and I, I always laugh at people that take that approach, that cynical approach, because I would think, well, I guess it's the hot flash that changed the world, you know. <laughs> so I, I guess you could call it that. And, and, and his spiritual awakening, his feeling of the wind blowing through him and everything would be all right. is a little different than mine, but I have had a spiritual awakening as after the release from the bondage of self. And for me, what does it look like? It looks like the promises. <laughs> you lose interest in selfish things. That's waking up, you know? Another thing that I, I've, I've talked about, Sandy, quite a bit in these podcasts, but it, when people get hinky with me and in, in sponsorship about, well, I don't believe in God. And I go, well, we're going to talk about spiritual stuff. And he goes, I don't believe in God. And I go, well, there's the material where you go to work every day. So you have a roof over your head and you can put food on the table. And you know, there's the material where you do things with your wife so that you can have children. <clears throat> and there's all those material things. And then there's these spiritual things with go against your natural desires and make absolutely no sense to someone who believes they are the center of the universe. If I'm the center of the universe, why would I do an inventory? I couldn't be wrong about anything. I'm not carrying anything around. I'm pushing forward through my own power, right? If I'm the center of the universe, why would I surrender? Well, who am I surrendering? What am I turning my will and my life over to? Me, if I'm the center of the universe, if there is no God, why would I do an 11 step? Right. But you can do these spiritual steps and not believe in God. In fact, a guy said in an AA meeting, 
once. He said, you guys say he's an atheist. He said, you guys say that faith without works is dead. And I tell you, works without faith work just fine. And I started laughing. <laughs> I said, yeah, if you do spiritual exercises, altruistic acts, honesty and transparency, if you make amends to the things you've done wrong, again, none of those things are material exercises. They're spiritual by their very nature. They don't have anything to do with your survival. You will have an experience and you don't have to call it God. We just use that as our language. So I've had that. And, and, and I will tell you quickly, I've had one profound one where, and, and I was, I was um, my first year of sobriety, this girl had broken my heart. I was, I was stupid thing. It was, I shouldn't have gotten involved in it. And, but I was doing the steps with my sponsor. I'd done a fifth step. I was paying the money back and, and they're just this dumb romance, but I took it very hard and I, and I never had my heart broken sober. And I had this really lame job. I, I had to go down to the Harbor early in the morning and work at this gas dock. And my parents had had a boat in that Harbor. So I was putting gas into people's boats that I had, you know, crewed on when I was a kid. And now I'm out of college, two degrees and drank away my career. So it was really a humbling job. And, but one of the things they had is they had these little rowboats there with motors on them for fishermen. And I was so brokenhearted, I didn't think I could make it. I mean, I hurt so badly and I didn't think I could make it without drinking. And I remember some of the AA guys used to come hang out down there and talk to me, some of the old timers, and they'd tell me, you know, pray for her and all that stuff. And I remember the last time I, I even stopped at the Catholic church that I, I have trouble with from my, from my youth. And I went in there and knelt in front of the statue of Mary and said, please help me, please help me. I don't know what to do. I, I, I don't want to drink again and I don't want to kill myself. I just want to, I just want back what I had before. And, and I don't know how to treat women. And, and I went down to the docks and, and my first job was to unlock all these boats. And it's, it's almost dawn. It's dark still. And it, there's this lock and the chain runs through about 15 of these little skiffs with motors. And I put my cigarette out and I'm smoking like, you know, a fiend and I'm coming out of my skin and my heart hurts. I got a hole in me so big and I, no one understands that whole feeling of being estranged. And I got the lock and the chain out of the boats and I started the first engine. I was standing up and I had to brace myself because the boat took off. So I had to stand up and balance. And as I looked up, everything in my view, uh, this was in Redondo Beach. So the Edison plant with the beautiful Wyland murals. Uh, the, the life, the Coast Guard station, it was up on stilts in the water. Uh, I remember a bird flew by. Every, everything was one thing. It wasn't like theoretically one thing. It, I wasn't imagining it was one thing. It was very clearly one grand energy that was unfolding and had always been unfolding. In fact, I remember when that bird flew by out of the corner of my eye, I thought that bird was, was scheduled to fly by at this moment. 20 million years ago and it just showed up and, and I looked down through the water and this was not in my, I was not thinking I was experiencing this and I could see all the way to the floor of the, of the Harbor and I could see fish. And I knew that I was the fish and the fish were me, that the water was the boat and the boat was me. And my hands were in the air and the air was part of my hand. There was no separation at all. I don't even know how to describe it. I am not describing it right now. I'm trying to describe it. But there was a universal energy that could not be torn in any way, could not be separated in any way. And I recognized my part of the fabric. And I got over to where the, the gas was and I laid down on my back and I was hyperventilating because it was a lot to take. And I laid there and it did not go away. I laid there for a long time. And then slowly I'm just doing, I'm living in this magical space and I'm gassing up these boats and I'd go up to the store and these old fishermen used to come in and mock me for not drinking and they're buying beer to go fishing and one by one they'd come in and I'd go you're I think you're God and you don't even see it you are so clearly God I can see it so clearly and so am I and so is everything that's vibrating in the store it was so amazing and uh over time it it, it calmed down and dissipated but I've never forgotten it and I know it's truthless like I know my eyes are green I know it's never stopped existing I just am not tuned into that. And I know that if I hadn't done all of those steps, if I hadn't listened to those guys who came down there and talked to me at the gas dock about the spiritually correct way to approach somebody that, that, that hurt me in such a way, 
if I hadn't been willing, if I hadn't prayed before I got out of the car, stuffing my last cigarette into this overflowing ashtray, I had a real ashtray sitting on my dashboard. It was the real newcomer cruiser. <laughs> and it's like, I'm sure it was going to catch on fire any minute, you know, but I, but if I hadn't done all that, I, I think, I think godly, you know, there's a great line in many, many different spiritual uh, uh, traditions. As you know, I have a degree in, in religious studies and a degree in English literature. I mean, even, even, uh, Leonard Cohen talks about it. God comes in through the cracks. You know, God comes in through the wounds. And I think I got, I was just, the bondage of self was so leveled and so, my, my ego was so completely deflated that there was enough room for the grandeur of experience. And it just flowed all around me. And so I've had several things in my life that have happened as a result of these steps. Usually they're interpersonal. They're between me and someone maybe in a prison, or maybe, maybe I'll get to talk to you about India today, but I've had many, many things, but that, that would be one example of a spiritual awakening. And once you're awake like that, you don't forget it. Once you realize your everyday life feels like a dream and it probably is, you don't forget it. But I think I've been real grateful. And this helps me segue into the very next section. I think one of the reasons I have been able to maintain a real those promises are pretty steady in my life. I do know serenity. I comprehend the word serenity. You know, I I used to say the serenity prayer, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. And for years, I thought that was, God, please give me patience to put up with the BS that I don't like. (laughs) I really like thought that's what we were praying for. And then over time, I comprehended the word serenity. Like, spiritual centeredness, a well of stillness, not so that I can put up with, but I can accept things I can't change. And acceptance, I mean, many of your listeners, and you know, my wife's disabled, has been for 20 out of 25 years of my marriage. Acceptance of that isn't like, I'm going to be patient with her. It's, this is her now. And I don't, like, this is her and it's okay. This is her. I don't have to qualify any feeling about it. That's acceptance through serenity. And, you know, I think one of the reasons that I've been able to hold on to these things so well is because I've never not sponsored somebody. I, I've been with people in AA, go, oh, I drifted away for a few years or, oh, I didn't go to any meetings for a long time. It's like, you can't be on the phone with a guy asking how many meetings he went to and reading the book with him and you know, eventually you're going to go to a meeting (laughs) tomorrow or the next week. So that's what I wanted to talk about. And I think I was kind of raised, Bill C is a guy on this podcast. JS is, you know, is my grand sponsor. And when I was new in in my home group, the Hermosa Beach Monday Night Men's Stag, you know, Bill used to say there's 11 steps and they're all training for the 12th step. And he'd say stuff like uh, the most spiritual sentence in in AA is get in the car, you know, and that was my, and I, I don't disagree. I think, but I think they're all amazing. I, I mean, I might have said already to you, John, it's like, you know, t- like, let's talk about the 12 step. It's like, well, that's like, let's talk about one note of Jimi Hendrix's Star Spangled Banner at, at <laughs> stock, right? It's like, God, God, that C sharp was incredible, right? That sustain, <laughs> but it doesn't make any sense without the rest, right? But one of the things that I think for me makes the 12 step so, so precious and validate the whole rest of the program is there's a lot of steps based on us, right? Sure, we make amends. We make amends for the wrongs we did, right? Yeah, we pray and meditate so we get a conscious contact with God. But, you know, it is Gandhi called the danger sometimes of just indulging in mystical experience, the higher narcissism. He said, beware of the higher narcissism. And Vivekananda called it heartless escapism masquerading as illumination. And I, I've seen that in AA and I've seen it in my religious studies programs and in some, the seminary I went to and some of the, the, and myself. But what keeps AA so pure is you have to go now be inconvenienced for another human being over and over. It keeps my feet on the ground. It keeps the spiritual soil rich around my feet. It feeds me because if I were just off on meditation retreats and the next new age speaker and all that stuff, it's just more Matthew, more selfishness and self-centeredness, more competition. And and I think that uh, that's the beautiful part. You know, Thomas Merton in a book, No Man is an Island, he, one of the first sentences is he says, 
a happiness that is sought for oneself alone can never be found because a happiness that is diminished by being shared would never be large enough to make you truly happy. Mm. And I think that that's the part of the, you know, I've said before, these are elegant exercises and that's part of the elegance of this. And, you know, I talked about Bill's spiritual experience, you know, it was as a result of these steps. If you read Bill's story after Ebby sat with him and acquainted him with everything, he was back in the hospital for, you know, for safety's sake to, to detox. And he had that experience, but then what did he do? He looked for someone to help. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and I don't know what happens in Dallas, Texas, but I go to lots of places for AA and I hear people say, I didn't pick up the 10,000 pound phone. I just can't pick up the 500 pound phone. Well, however heavy, heavy it is in your town, <laughs> and what drives <laughs> me crazy about that is the implication is I'm just, you know, being a loner. I'm isolating. I'm not sharing my problems with anybody. And part of the spiritual awakening for me is being well aware that my spiritual health is not dependent on me telling you my problems. My spiritual health is often dependent on me listening to yours. And Bill was in a hotel, failed again at business. Uh, uh, One of the worst bottoms I know, sober. Bill was homeless for two years, sober. You know, in LA, if you don't get a Corvette by your 60th day, people are like, when am I going to get mine? You know, <laughs> homeless. You know, they slept on people's couches and in guest rooms. But what did he do? He picked up the 10,000 pound phone to try to help somebody. And when he called Tunks, Tunks said, I, you, need to, you need to call Henrietta Cyberling. That would have been like you and me calling Melinda Gates. Bill Wilson was intimidated by her because she was part of that family that Firestone family. And he was a stockbroker. He didn't want to call her. He went up to his room. A lot of people don't know this, but I spoke at Founders Day and Gail LaCroix told me the whole story. In the elevator, a voice in his head said, call her. And he called her and she had been waiting because they had had a a sitting in silence listening for God with Bill and or Bob and Anne a few weeks before. And Bob had just shared finally that he was an alcoholic. And after they were done with their silence, uh, Henrietta Cyberling said to Bob, someone's coming to help you. And two weeks later, Bill Wilson called. Mm-hmm. That's the 10,000 pound phone. You don't pick it up to go. I don't want to be a secret. Like go tell you listen to somebody's secrets. Your secrets will come out. You comfort right. someone's pain. Your pain will come out. And that's what Bill did. And you know, a lot of people don't know this. He walked, he walked five miles. If you go to the Mayflower hotel to the center of uh, the Cyberling mansion and the gatehouse, he was too embarrassed to say, I don't have money for cab fare. And if you remember the story, Bob didn't show up. And, and Henrietta talked to Bill. There's a funny Henrietta, uh, Gail LaCroix told me, Henrietta Cyberling kept asking him all these questions. And he finally said, lady, this is the first time I've ever had to prove to anybody I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> and she just wanted to make sure he was the guy to help. You know? <laughs> but he came back again. You know, Henrietta sent a car from the second time. That's what the 12 step is. He went to great trouble. He called 10 different people on a, on, a, on a church directory in a hotel where he could hear the bar behind him. He's all alone. He's failed at business. He's going to go home a failure to New York. He's barely hanging on. He had his white light experience, and he thought, I got to find somebody to help. And that's why Bob stayed, because Bob wanted to get out of there. <clears throat> and, he, and he stayed because he didn't. Bill didn't give him a bunch of holier than thou, you got to do this and give your life to Jesus. He said, let me tell you what happened. I couldn't do this. I was, you know, I was going to jump out the window. I punched a cab driver on the last time I got a job. You know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, you know, vision for you. I, this, this is me and, and I'm sober now. And, and all I know is I do these things. And Bill tried to end that conversation. And Bob said, sit down, Sam, I need to talk to you. And what Bob said is this man did what I wouldn't. I went to every Oxford club meeting, group meeting. I did everything. I prayed all the prayers, but I never lifted a finger for another human being. You know, and I I think the best way to illustrate it, obviously, I was 12 stepped. I talked about that when I talked about my first step here on the on the podcast. So what I really want to talk about is working with others. And we could do you want to interrupt me for a second? 
<clears throat> yeah, just let me take a little break. We will be continuing our conversation with Matthew M. in just a moment. Just a reminder, you're listening to Sober Speak. You can find us on the web, web at SoberSpeak.com. You can also find the donate button on our website, which you can use if and only if the spirit moves you to do such. Please keep in mind, this is a podcast funded by you, the listener. Sober Speak is a self-supporting organization through our own contributions. We are not allied with any sect denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. All right. Now back to Mr. Matthew M. I did want to ask you one question. Yeah. <clears throat> you talked earlier about the spiritual awakening and not you've not gone back to sleep. And the reason that you've gone not gone back to sleep is because you know, you're, you've kept your feet on the ground throughout your uh, involvement in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and I, I do want to kind of dive into that a little bit, because what do you see happening from your experience when people do go back to sleep, so to speak? And, and do you see people go up and down with that? What's your thought process <clears throat> on that? I have a, I have a friend um, <clears throat> that I sponsor now. I'm, I'm going to keep his anonymity, but he said, you know, I came to AA and I worked the steps and so many things cleared up for me. And I learned so many truths that I can't go back to unlearn them. And my brother came to AA. This is not me. This is another guy. And he didn't work the steps and he's drinking. And what, it, what I get reminded every time I see him is he still blames other people for his problems. I did a fifth step and it had a column where I looked at my faults and mistakes and I'm current with a sponsor. I have forfeited the right to blame anything, any factor for my problems, and that's freedom. <clears throat> and what I see, and, and it happened to my brother who 12-stepped me, he's no longer sober, is we start to have secrets like, um, you know, we start to think we're somebody in AA, right? Which, you know, God, I, I just, if I could say it as clearly as possible, it's Alcoholics Anonymous. Like my sponsor says, we don't make a name for ourselves here. <laughs> my name is Matthew M. I'm not trying to get on. I don't want you to buy my book. I don't want you to hear how Matthew sees it. This is a very level organization that way. Right. But what happens is we, we stop coming, showing up. We stop, we get a secret like, Oh, I'm some, I can't, I can't have a bad marriage. What will the people in my group think? I have an AA marriage. I can't tell the truth about what's happening. I can't discuss that my business has gone south or that I'm broke right now. I can't do that. You know, my brother actually said to me, I don't want to be the guy who loses everything and stays sober. He actually said that to me while he was losing everything. And I said, what do you want to be? The guy who loses everything and gets loaded? And that's mm -hmm. what he did. Mm -hmm. And I've seen people, I've never seen anybody in AA swimming in the right direction, circle the drain, no matter what setbacks or bad circumstances have happened. Not one time. I've seen people have lives they didn't expect, go through some hard times, but the trajectory always, it's always upward. It's always upward if you swim in the right direction. So for me, how you go back to sleep is you, you stay away. You don't work with others. You, what is it? You give the steps back one at a time. I want to uh, cover something real quick that we've actually talked about. You brought up in one of our other episodes, and and I'm pretty sure it was the episode with uh, you and Bill and Jay where we did the kitchen table AA. Um, and and that is because I have thought about this so many times sitting in meet, meet, meetings as of late. You know, we talk about the the quote. And nobody really knows what the, quote, success rate is in Alcoholics Anonymous, right? But I heard you describe the um, how people don't really have a grasp of what it is. because, and, and I want you to explain it, but you said, really, if you look at the people who come in, get a sponsor, all that sort of stuff. Can you, can you walk through that again? I, I don't know. I'm not sure I know exactly what you mean, but I, I can tell you, tell you what I well, might Okay, so... Yeah, yeah. So basically what you were referring to at the time is you said, in essence, people will try to measure, quote, success rates, if you will, in Alcoholics Anonymous, because, you know, people go in oh, and, yeah. you know, I was in and out for like three years. Yeah. But if you take the people who 
do right, the deal. Now. Okay. I have a cousin who's a doctor and at the time she wasn't sober and I, I knew she should be. And I went to her house and she was telling me she read some paper about how AA really doesn't work in these stats. And I said, well, I work in medicine. I work in it with a biotech company and you know, <clears throat> the, what's the most expensive medicine on the planet? The one you don't take. <laughs> and so I said, if everybody took the medicine exactly as prescribed and the study proved that it didn't work, that would be one thing. But most people come to AA. I will say this true. Most people and do not take the medicine as prescribed. But I'll, I'll give you another example, a more concrete example having to do with this step. I go to prisons and jails, right? That's one of the things I do to, to make sure I stay keep a hold of my spiritual awakening as I be, I don't like going to prisons and jails. I never wake up and go, oh, great. It's prison night. You know, I, know, I never do. I'm like looking at my hot wife and my beautiful guitars and my, my lovely yellow lab. And I'm thinking, why am I going to prison? You know, but what I do now when I go to prisons, cause I've been doing it a long time is I, I, I asked these groups of guys, Hey, and I, I, some, and when I was up in Washington, I would do four 45 minute meetings in one night, you know, and I talked to almost 300 people. And I'd say, how many of you have been to AA? And everyone raises their hand. Every single person raises their hand. How many of you have gotten a sponsor? 20% raise their hand. <clears throat> how many of you have gotten a sponsor and worked the steps? Usually nobody, maybe on a good day, two people still have their hands up. How many of you have ever sponsored somebody? Nobody raises their hand. And I said, well, that's why you're in prison. Mm. You didn't take the medicine as prescribed. You know, if, if you take an antibiotic, they always tell you, even though you feel better, take the next three doses, right? Because <laughs> the disease isn't gone. Just because the monkey's off your back doesn't mean the circus has left town, son. Go sponsor <laughs> somebody, right? <laughs> it's like, and that's what I mean. It's like, it. you cannot say the statistics show that 10,000 people came to AA and 200 stayed sober. If you can say 10,000 people got a sponsor, worked the step, paid the money back, worked with others relentlessly, and then gave me a percentage, then I believe you. Right. Yeah. That's what I love you meant. Yeah. Okay. So I got you off track of the 12th surrender. Uh, what did you want to cover next were the well, surrenders? I, I really believe, uh, I could tell you my conceptual beliefs, which I've done a lot of today. <laughs> I want to talk concretely, right? So I'm going to tell the story of a guy that I sponsored because I, it taught me a lot. And, and I'm, I'm going to preface it with a lot of people that have been listening to these podcasts. And I just said it earlier, my wife's disabled. She's been disabled for 20 years of our 25-year marriage. We'll be 25 years married in July. We're going to Greece for that. Um, but she, uh, when she was in the hospital, many, many people came to visit her. 75 separate men, because they write their names on a ledger came to see my wife. In fact, one of the physical therapists said, are you, are you a famous madam? Like, why do all these men <laughs> come to see you? And she said, no, they're friends of my husband's. <laughs> but the, the humility of that, like being able to accept that help, that was a little tough on me. You know, I, I had to learn how to be loved too. I had to learn how to be loved. And what learning how to be loved means is having enough self-esteem to say, I need this. I deserve this. And it's okay. But with that in mind, there was a guy around our group called Liver Mike. And he was called Liver Mike because he would turn yellow whenever he drank because he had no <laughs> liver, right? It just didn't work. And we have nicknames, and our nicknames are usually not kind <laughs> at, our, at our meeting. And Liver Mike, I saw him. I liked the guy. And then he asked me to sponsor him. And he was relapsing. And one day I got a call. I was at work, and they said, Mike's in the hospital. He's in an alcoholic coma. He was in a hospital near my house. So I went by to see him. It's hard to get in there. He's an ICU. And he did every single member of his family died of alcoholism. His brothers, his sister, his parents, his uncles, his grandparents, every single one. So I talked my way into the hospital by giving my business card and saying, I am his sponsor in Alcoholics Anonymous. Don't you think I should be able to see him? And no one else is going to come. And they let me in. And when I went in to see him, I stood at his bedside and I looked at him and he was in a coma, right? Great big guy. I think he's like 6'3", big, big guy. Uh, and I said, I said to him, Mike, I'm going to come visit you every day, you know, because I'm all full of love from everybody that came to visit my wife a few years before that. 
said, I'm going to come visit you every day. And, and I have to be honest, John, I immediately regretted that I said that. <laughs> I mean, not like the next day. I mean, walk, walking back to my car, I'm like, God, why didn't I say I'm going to come see you every other day? <laughs> what was I thinking? He's in a coma. He didn't even know. But but I was trained by good people. And, and I went every day. And one day, it was particularly bad. It was like a week. And, and I kept asking, when's Mike going to get out? And they would look at their shoes. And that's doctor for never. <laughs> right. And so I was, I was working with doctors up in Pasadena and I lived in Long Beach. So that's about a half an hour away and it was pouring rain. So the traffic was terrible. Californians don't know what that stuff falling out of the sky is. <laughs> they don't know how to drive in the rain. It was a bad day for work. I, I, I remember saying that part of what I knew my, my temper was so bad is because Derek and the Domino's Layla came on and it's a masterpiece on, on my stereo. And I thought, it, I go, this song is terrible. <laughs> Eric Clapton's a hack. I mean, I was having one of those days, right? And I'm driving home and I got off the freeway and it, where I got off the freeway was where the hospital was. And I was like, oh God, I got to go see Mike. And I don't want to. I had a bad day at work. I'm not really sure anybody's going to want to see me at home. I'm not in a good place. I got nothing to offer him. And I'm a little mad at him, Right. What the heck, Mike? We're all trying to help you and you keep drinking. And now you're going to die in this little rainy hospital in Los Alamitos, California. And so I, I but I got a great AA car and it pulled into the parking lot. <laughs> and I and I walked up the ICU at a back door and I had to talk my way in. And it's a rainy day in ICU. The nurses are kind of in a bad mood. And I had to tell him again the story, show him my business card and get in there. And and he was in the dark. He's sitting there in the dark. He's strapped in because when they brought him in, he was throwing nurses around and punching people. And then he lapsed into a coma. And I sat at the foot of his bed and I, I looked at my watch and it was like a quarter to whatever, six or seven at night. And I thought, all right, I'll give you 15 minutes, Mike. And I just looked around the room. I looked at Mike. His, his eyes were half open and his all the, the, the blood vessels in his eyes had, had broken. So he had red blood eyes and it, they were just red eyes and his teeth were all messed up and he was on his, he's dying, you know, and uh, I, and I got, he was all yellow. And after 13 minutes, I rounded up, <laughs> I got up and thought, all right, I did what I said I was going to do. And I walked over and just stood next to his bed and my hands were dangling over the side of the railing and he grabbed my hand and he sat bolt upright. He'd been in a coma for a couple of weeks and I about, I almost needed a new suit, if you know what I mean. <laughs> really, really surprised. And uh, he didn't look at me. It was odd. He looked at the wall away from me and he looked around the room and then his eyes came to me and I'll never forget because he had these red eyes and he said, am I crazy? And I looked at him and said, no, man, you're alcoholic. And he looked all the back, all the way back to the wall real slowly. And then again, all the whole half circle of the room. And he looked at me and he tilted his head and he said, why do you love me so much? And I felt ashamed of myself. But I looked at him and all I could think of to say was, because you're just like me. You're exactly like me. And he fell back into a coma. And there was a light in that room. There was a rightness about the world. All the planets were aligned. I knew exactly where I was supposed to be standing, the exact spot on the planet. And I felt full and light at the same time. And I stayed in there with him a while. And then I went and got the nurses and I said, I think he's out of his coma. And I just talked to him and he, they, he wasn't out of his coma. And they, sorry about the noise. I think somebody's opening the garage door, but he, uh, he was not. And they came in and said, no, he's still in a coma. And I said, well, I just talked to him. And later he's, he got out, he's got out of the hospital and uh, I'm going to finish with this. You know, I didn't let him go home because he was getting in trouble when he went to this apartment and he moved into our, he moved into our Airstream trailer in the driveway. And every morning I'd get up and I'd, I'd go out there and do my, my readings with him and we'd meditate and pray. And then I would go off to work and I'd come home in the afternoon and we'd talk about what meeting we we're going to go to. And we talk about the book and he was like coming back to life. And I was thinking maybe the grapevine was going to send some reporters to my house and talk about what an amazing sponsor I was. Cause I was like, this guy was <laughs> Lazarus and I'm bringing him. I mean, I was so full of myself about how well I'd worked with Mike. 
And then it came time for Mike to go get his own place and he got a job and he said, can I talk to you for a little while? And I thought he was going to thank me. I thought he might have a present for us, but he didn't. He had a list, he had a little pad of paper. And he said, hey man, uh, you wanted these polished concrete floors for your house. And uh, your wife, they get dirty real fast. And Pip only has that one arm that works. And it'd be really helpful for you if you could sweep those on Wednesdays and Fridays. That's when I sweep them. And hey, you know, you joke around with Pip about the, the school lunches and stuff and the, why they're messy. Because he only has one hand, man. Those Ziploc bags, you got to zip those bags. If you could just do that at night, the kids' lunches would be fresh in the morning. That's what I've been doing. And it's really great that you're disciplined with your children, that they come home, they have an hour to play, then they do their homework for two hours. And he goes, but God, man, you should try sitting down with them. I sit down with them while they do their homework. They're really funny. They're really smart. You should try that. And I realized sitting there right at that moment that though Mike didn't get healthy because I was helping him. Mike got healthy because he was helping others. I gave him an instant family to love and he loved them without reservation and he loved them with his actions. God never brings two of us together to help one of us. Never. And that's what I think people miss. You think you're going to go read the book with some guy you don't like. What's going to happen is you're going to go to that guy's house who asked you to sponsor him and you're going to read the book and you're going to work through the steps and you're going to get so intimately involved with them. Not only are you going to eventually love that person, you're going to like yourself a little better because you were honest and transparent and you saw someone heal based on your own wound. Where do we get to do that? I've been to lots of churches. I've been to Buddhist temples. I've been to days and days of retreat and I fell into the higher narcissism. And instead, you, you go out there and you do this and you have, you know, my daughter wrote a college entrance essay and she said, where some dads would pick up their daughters and take them to tea parties, my dad would pick me up and take me to the ICU to visit a guy named Liver Mike. Or <laughs> 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 Some dads had built mother-in-law quarters above their garage. We had an Airstream trailer where guys like Barnyard Tim used to live. <laughs> and that's all true. And, you know, they got helped. My kids care about the underdog. My kids love people with actions. So the whole thing about practicing this in all my affairs, am I as honest with my employer as I am with my sponsor? Am I as patient with my wife as I am with a newcomer? Do I own my own faults and mistakes when I'm having an argument with my adult children? Or do I take the high road and say, or the, the low road and say, I'm the dad, shut up. That's what that means to me. Am I, am I humble with them? Am I available for her? Am I honest there? That's what that means to me. But I'll tell you, one of the things that gifts for me is I got to go to India. And I went to India because I had carried a lot of baggage. I moved to Washington and I wasn't fitting into AA and still doing con conferences, but no friends. And this guy invited me to India and we went to India and I had, through a series of events, I ended up, I wanted to work for Kali got for Mother Teresa, Kali got. And on the way over there, I was in this bus and this woman said, Hey, you can't, um, you don't get to work with the patients for the first few weeks, but you get to do the laundry. And then a few weeks you do the, you do the uh, dishes. And then after about a month, you get to work with the patients. And I was sad because I went there to work with the patients. I had a real reason I wanted to work with the dying. It was very personal. Maybe we'll talk about it someday, John, but but I got there and I realized, let go, man, let go and let India, because India is a chaotic place. I've been there for three weeks already. I'd had many, many amazing experiences. I thought, well, I'm going to do dishes and laundry. I thought I was going to help people with their last breath. And I walked in and this little tiny nun, this little nun dressed just like Mother Teresa in the sari and the white and the blue. She grabbed my arm and she said, what's your name? And I said, it's Matthew. And she said, are you a physiotherapist? And I said, no. And she said, are you a physiotherapist today? And I started laughing and said, do you need a physiotherapist? She said, well, not just anyone. Have you ever had any experience doing exercises with someone that's paralyzed on one half of their body? I said, sister, I've been doing that for 20 years. My wife's paralyzed on one side of her body. And she goes, we really need you to work directly with the patients. Do you think you're up to that? And I got to hold people while they died. I held this man's head in my arms.
And there were people all around him, petting him and praying to him, rubbing his feet. And he passed away. And the nun said, more people loved him in that five minutes than loved him in the last 10 years of his life. And I'll tell you what, I have never felt more freedom from the bondage of self. I felt like I showed up to a dance that had been choreographed 300 million years ago, just like that bird flying by. I knew what I was supposed to do, and I felt light. I felt completely free. When I got home from that trip to India, I was on planes for 25 hours. I drove back from the Seattle airport to my house in Gig Harbor. I walked up my steps, and my wife said, oh, my God. I said, what? And she said, you look younger than the day you left. And that's part of practicing these principles. We're not just giving altruistically to alcoholics. We give love with action. We pray with our actions. And what do we get? Freedom from the bondage of self, a rich, full life, life's rich pageant. Man, I wouldn't trade this thing for anything. There's nothing ever that's had an impact on me like those 12 surrenders. Thanks for inviting me to do this, John. It's meant a lot to me. God bless you, my friend. We are most certainly getting back together again. I appreciate you, my friend. I appreciate this whole system. It's really, really beautiful what you're doing. I'm going to read page 164 from the book. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us, like me and Matthew, as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. This is not our last time together, Matthew. I appreciate your time today. I can't wait to talk to you again, John. So I know we just passed Surrender 12, but we will have Matthew back on in the future. Uh, he does an absolutely fantastic job. Uh, I love him to death as a person, and we will be getting him back very soon. Matthew, if you're listening to this, thank you so much for all the time that you have contributed to the listeners here on this podcast. Now, on to a little bit of a listener feedback Abby R. writes in and she says, Hi, John. My name is Abby R. from Richmond, Virginia. I am new to the program and God willing will be picking up my 90-day chip next week. I just wanted to thank you for Sober Speak as it has truly been my meeting between meetings. I listen to your podcast on my commute. So I usually get two or three episodes in a week. I especially connected with the stories of Brenda J. and Julia K. as they both gave me strength, uh, especially as my, quote, pink cloud, unquote, as we like to say, dissipated. I deal with multiple mental illness diagnoses, including PTSD and bulimia and the unique struggles of depression and guilt that come with being LGBT with a staunch religious upbringing. I found both Brenda and Julia's stories inspiring and uplifting for my recovery. Please pass this along to them and thank them on my behalf for sharing. Well, as you know, I uh, got your message to them, Abby R. Um, your podcast as a whole has added so much to my recovery, and I'm grateful for every person you've had on to share. And hopefully, I'll meet some of you as we trudge this road together. Abby R., that would be absolutely fantastic. Thank you for writing in. Cynthia writes in, she says, Hi, John M. I am a member of Al-Anon, and a few Al-Anoners recommend, is that a word, Al-Anoners? I don't think I could find that in the dictionary, but I understand what you're saying. Recommended your podcast to me to educate myself about growing up in alcoholism, and in particular, my alcoholic husband. I have not had the wherewithal 
Ooh, I like that word. Or energy to attend any open meetings yet. My husband and I had an incident in mid-March this year while we were staying in another hotel room. It was an awful night and remains an awful memory. This incident led him to attend some AA meetings and stop drinking. Unfortunately, he smokes a lot of pot and he is not in active recovery. Not a judgment, just a fact. After three months of Al-Anon active recovery for the third time in my life, I am getting past some of my anger and resentment and trying to see him as a human being with eyes of love and compassion. To be honest, I find it very confusing. I am not sure I am doing this for genuine altruistic reasons or because of fear of being abandoned. I am actively working on myself in Al-Anon, two meetings a day, reading lots of literature, and reaching out to others. I also have a great psychotherapist who ran an addiction an addiction center in New York City for 20 years. So I have pulled out all the stops. Would love to hear your experience, strength, and hope if you have any. Many blessings, Cynthia. Well, uh, here's what I'm going to say. Cynthia, it sounds like you are doing all the right things. You've pulled out all the stops. Um, I I just continue to, uh, if I have any um, advice, experience, strength, hope, whatever you want to call it, I would just keep on doing what you're doing there. Uh, Once again, it sounds like you are on the right track. God bless you. God bless your family, Cynthia. Please keep me posted. Matt writes in and Matt says, Hi, John. I am from St. Paul, Minnesota. My first recovery was 13 years ago following a hospitalization. I did a few days of inpatient treatment and some outpatient. I attended AA meetings for a couple of years, maybe once a week at best, but didn't fully engage. I somehow managed 11 and a half years of sobriety. However, in the last 18 months or so, I reminded myself I'm an alcoholic with some attempts at controlled drinking. Of course, that didn't work and things were bad as ever. 17 days ago, I couldn't take it anymore. Confessed to my wife, my parents, my brother. I didn't want to hide it anymore. I've been going to AA meetings every day, trying various apps, one of which recommended your podcast, which I've been enjoying. I started as far back as Stitcher will let me. Brenda J. and Gary K. are my favorites so far. I've been listening to the AA Speakers Tape app, which has been great as well. Thank you so much, John, Matt. All right. Well, thank you, Matt, for writing in. And I'm glad that you are back up on the horse and riding it again. It's all one day at a time. Like I said before, many times on this thing, I went in and out for three years myself. I know it's not as I know it's not fun, but God bless you, and I'm I'm glad you are also on the right track. All right, everybody, that's it. Another week, another wrap up. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. Stay tuned for an incredible song by Mary Lynn B. And if for some reason you need to get in touch with Mary Lynn or anybody else that we've mentioned on the program, let me know. And I will be glad to connect folks as needed. One week at a time I do this. I think I'll be back next week. Once again, keep coming back. It works if you work it. Love you guys. If you go down to the corner You'll find a building on the right And you will hear people